Turn in your Bibles to uh, the Gospel of John, chapter 6. This is kind of where we left off last time. John, chapter 6. Let us, uh, let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for giving us a place to gather for your holy word. Pray that you'll give us an understanding for the strengthening of our souls and the glory of your name. We ask it in the name of Christ our Lord, for his sake, amen. Familiar verse that I read last time, John chapter 6 and verse 37, all that the Father gives me shall come to me. Him that comes to me I will in no wise cast out. In this one verse, we have something about the sovereignty of God in giving a people to his Son. And in the second part of the verse, the conditions for coming to any assurance that you've been given to the Son, you come, you come to Him. All who come to Christ may be assured that they have been given to Him. So there's not a problem there. We could preach on the first part of the verse in the morning, emphasizing the sovereignty of God in giving a people to Christ. And in the second part of the verse on Sunday evening, the responsibility of coming to Christ. Well, to review briefly, I have taken the word grace, the English word grace, and used it as an acrostic. G for goodness, R for righteousness, A for atonement, C for covenant, and E for election and everyone who comes to Christ, everyone who is thirsty. God is a good God. He desired to show his goodness, but he is also a holy God, and he would not show his goodness at the expense of his righteousness. And so he sent his son to provide a righteousness for us, and he provided that, that righteousness through what we call the atonement. And I have pointed out to you that that word is only mentioned once in the New Testament and is mentioned in Romans 5. And there it really should not have been translated atonement. The word atonement meant something different in 1611 when the King James Version was translated. But the word reconciliation is what should have been uh, that's what that Greek word should have been translated. However, as I have pointed out to you on numerous occasions, the word atonement, A-T-A-T-O-N-E-1-M-E-N-T, one-ment, so you're having, that, that implies two parties that have been separated and they're reconciled. They're brought together at one. That atonement provided the righteousness that freed the goodness of God to be shown to sinners. That atonement that provided that righteousness, that freed the goodness of God, was all planned out in the covenant. 
And that covenant was before the foundation of the world. That covenant involved all three persons of the Godhead. The Father determined to save. The Son said, I'll go and pay the price. And the Spirit calls to faith in Christ those who were in that covenant or put in that covenant by God. Grace is the mercy of God given, but not to righteous people, but to unrighteous people. Christ did not die for righteous people. He provided a righteousness for unrighteous people. He did not die for good men and good women, but he died for sinners, Romans 5, 6 through 8. When we were without strength, in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. Scarcely for a righteous man will one die. Perhaps some would die for a good man. But God commended his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We were willing sinners. We were natural sinners. We were sinners by choice and we were sinners by practice. Now this sets the stage for this study, which is a part two of last week, I feel that the E requires more than one study. All of the others, uh, goodness, righteousness, atonement, covenant, I spent only one, one study in it. We could have done a lot more. But I think this requires more than one study. So what I'm doing now is continuing what I did last time, and that is this. I want to establish the basis for the necessity of election. In other words, why is election necessary? It is necessary because of the spiritual state of all human beings as a result of the fall of the first man, Adam. The Lord warned him that he would die if he ate the forbidden fruit and we know that after he ate the forbidden fruit, he lived almost a thousand years. The scripture says in Genesis chapter 5, verse 5, that he lived 930 years. So that should automatically tell us that either God was mistaken or God lied, or there's some other kind of death that he died because he lived 930 years. So he died what we call a spiritual death. I believe that before Adam sinned, that he was full of God. I don't even believe he was that much self-conscious. He was God-conscious. He was filled with God, filled with God's love, his grace, his mercy, concerned with his will, just like the second Adam or the last Adam, our Lord Jesus Christ, repeatedly says, I always do those things that please my father. I came here to do my father's will. The first Adam was like that until he sinned. But when he sinned, then he was separated from the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God left him. And when the Spirit of God leaves, you are dead spiritually. So the death he died was a spiritual death, and he died spiritually 
the moment, the very moment that he took of that forbidden fruit. He was separated from God with no means of reconciliation. But what is worse, he had no desire for reconciliation. He not only was separated, but he had no desire. If you go back and read the narrative, let's turn to Romans chapter 3. If you go back and read the narrative in Genesis, you won't find anything that resembles Adam being sorry for his sin or repenting of his sin or saying, Lord, forgive me of my sin or throwing himself on the mercy of God. You won't find anything of that. What you find is when he heard the voice of the Lord as God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, which he had heard his voice many times, the father came down to visit his daughter and his son. But when he heard his voice that day, he ran from him. And the Lord said, Adam, where are you? And he said, I heard your voice and I was hiding myself because I was naked. And the Lord said, who told you you were naked? And then he said, the Lord said, have you eaten? of the tree, of the knowledge, of good and evil, that told you not to eat of. And what did Adam do? I'm sorry, Lord, forgive me. No. He said, well, it's really your fault. He blamed God. He said, it's your fault. The woman you gave me, I was doing just fine. You gave me a woman, and then she gave me of the fruit, and I did eat. And the Lord said to the woman, what have you done? And she said, the serpent beguiled me. And he didn't say anything to the serpent except, I'm going to send the seed of the woman to put you out of business. I'm going to send the seed of the woman and he's going to crush your head. You're going to bruise his heel. This is all in Genesis chapter 3. And the promise there of the Messiah is Genesis chapter 3 in verse 15. So Adam sins against God. I'm trying to give you now the basis of election. Why? There must be an election if anybody is to be saved. And I covered some of this last week. You can get the, the CD or get the tape. Uh, for those of you watching by the Internet, we'll be glad to send you a CD of last study or any of the studies that we have here. So he was separated from God. He not only was dead spiritually, no means of reconciliation, but no desire for reconciliation. So in Romans chapter 3, we have this tremendous indictment and description of the condition of man, which really should answer all the questions about election. My friends, listen to me. Thing that, the thing to be upset about is not about election. I can clearly show you, as I'm going to do in these few studies that we'll have, that the, the Bible definitely teaches the doctrine of election. Charles Spurgeon said to a man who said, Well, Mr. Spurgeon, I believe if you take the first step, then God will take the next step. And Mr. Spurgeon said, sir, if I could take the first step, I could run all the way. I wouldn't need God if I could take the first step. 
when Christ went to the, to the grave of Lazarus, he didn't say, Lazarus, if you'll wiggle your toe, I'll do something for you. If you'll bat your eye, if you'll just move your finger, let me know you want to get out of there because Lazarus was dead. And Christ had to go to where Lazarus was and then Christ had to command Lazarus to come forth. Christ, with the word that he told him to come forth, Lazarus come forth, went the power of the Spirit that put life in him that enabled him to respond to the command of Christ to come forth. Christ was the cause of all of that, and he is the cause of all of the life of any sinner that is saved. So the issue, the issue with understanding grace is the issue of depravity. If we believe that men and women and boys and girls are as bad off as the Scripture says they are, that unless God does something, no one will be saved. And we have to see that. That is very, very important. In here, in Romans chapter 3, we get some idea. He says in verse 10, there's none righteous, no, not one. If you notice, you probably have right there by that verse, you might have Psalm 14. You might have a note in your Bible that says Psalm 14, because he's quoting Psalm 14. There is none that understand, there is none that seek after God. All have gone their own way, verse 12, rather than God's way, and as a result are unprofitable to the Lord. They cannot in any way be profitable to the Lord in their present state. All of them are wicked, none of them are good in God's sight. And then we begin to read of the fruit of that's produced by this spiritual state of death, beginning in verse 13. He says, their throat is an open grave. That speaks of cruelty, the cruelty of human beings. He says, they, with their tongues, they have used deceit. That has to do with your speech, the, the deceive people with our tongues. We are deceptive. Then we destroy others with the poison of asp. He said that's under their lips. We destroy a person's reputation. We destroy people with our lips. Then he says in verse 14 that their mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. We curse men and we curse God. And then he says we're filled with bitterness. That's resentment and hostility and antagonism. And then in verse 15, he says, their feet are swift. Doesn't take much to get men to shed blood. They are murderers at heart. They possess the spirit of murder. That's what verse 15 is about. Now, I've told you over the years, you know, homicide. When I moved here, I never even heard of homicides in Franklin or Nashville, and now every day you turn on the news and you hear of certain homicides, and you can see the word homo-side, the killing of another person. And then you got genocide, that's going over there in Israel, where the Arabs are killing the Jews, and the Jews are killing the Arabs. And then you got suicide, and that's when somebody is 
so lost and so down and so depressed they kill themselves. And all of that is caused by deicide. Deicide is the death of God. The death of God. When Adam sinned against God, if that sin could have had the impact that the devil, Lucifer, who deceived them, wanted it to have, it would have resulted in the death of God. The thing that makes God God, or at least one thing that makes him God, is that he has a sovereign will. He can't be God without his will. He can't do his will if he's not God. Deicide means the death of God because we do our will and we don't do God's will. If that were carried out, it would result in the death of God. Now, I realize that the Lord Jesus Christ was God in the flesh. I realize that. But there's a great mystery to his death. There is a sense in which I can say, at least in my own understanding, that the sin of Adam resulted eventually in the death of God. In the death of God, in the death of Christ. Now many would find fault with that statement because they would say, well look, it was the human nature of Christ that died and not the divine nature, and that's true enough. Don't have a problem with that. But you can't separate the human nature and the divine nature in the person of Christ. And so I'm saying, I'm trying to show you the ferociousness, the hostility, the antagonism, the power of sin. It's not what we do that's so bad. It's who it's done against. That's what makes sin so bad. So he says in verse 15 that we, we possess the spirit of murder, and we've got all of these uh, people hating, the Jews hating the Arabs, the Arabs hating the Jews, the black people hating the white people, the white people hating the black people, red and yellow, and uh, white and black. Uh, none of these do venom like. I would say that. I'd say it that way. In verse 16, he says that ruin and misery, destruction and misery, mock the human race. World wars, civil wars, racial wars. Verse 17, the way of peace have they not known. They don't know how to obtain peace, and they don't know how to preserve peace. Human beings are filled with confusion and darkness. Jesus said this is the condemnation that men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil, John 3, 19. And their deeds are evil because they are evil. And he said everyone that does evil hates the light, John chapter 3 and verse 20. Therefore, those who hate the light will not come to the light. Now, men will tell you that they don't hate God, and they don't. They don't hate the God of their imagination. But they do hate the God of this Bible. If they are exposed to the God of this Bible, as I hope to do in a little bit tonight, you will find that people will not, do not love that God. Now, we call this state of man that makes election necessary total 
depravity. Man is totally ruined from the crown of his head to the soles of his feet, as we just read from Romans 3. It's the state of man that makes election necessary if anyone is to be saved from eternal ruin. Now let's look again at Romans 3, just for a moment. He tells us in verse 10 that there's not one person righteous. Okay? Not one person is righteous. But many people in the human race, and especially the United States, they say, okay, we're not righteous, but we can get righteous by what we do. But he kills that argument when he says, nobody understands in verse 11. They don't understand who they are. They don't understand how bad off they are. They don't understand how holy God is. And so as a result of that, in verse 11, there's none who seek after God. Now, if men don't seek after God, how in the world can they be saved? God has to seek them. He has to call them. In the Bible, the, the greatest promise in the Bible, which we all know and quote Romans 8, 28, all things work together for good. For those who love God, who are the called according to his purpose? If you're not called, I don't care how religious you are, you don't love God. He calls people to himself, and men do not seek him if you Love the Lord tonight. If you want the will of Christ, if you want to serve Him, if you want to be with Him, if you want Him to be glorified, you have been called. Because the Scripture says nobody seeks after God. That's very clear right there in verse 11. As I have said before, humorously, you've never seen shepherds, I mean uh, sheep seeking shepherds. When a, shepherd, when a sheep gets lost, he's not out there worried about where the shepherd is. He doesn't even know he's lost. And that's part of the problem of human beings is they're lost and they don't know they're lost. They're dead in sin and they don't know they're dead in sin. And they think that by joining a church and walking an aisle and getting baptized and giving money and doing this, that, and the other, they think they're going to be all right with God. But I'm going to tell you, this thing of salvation is, a, is, a, is vital that we understand that it is God who takes the initiative. When the Bible says salvation is of the Lord, it means it is of the Lord from Alpha to Omega. It means he's the cause of it, and he's the initiator of it, he's the sustainer of it, and he's the one who finishes it. He's the Alpha and the Omega of our salvation. So it is the state of man that makes election necessary if anyone is to be saved from eternal ruin. Now, I have used our English word grace as an acrostic, acrostic, goodness, righteousness, atonement, covenant, and election, and everyone is thirsty. And I'm going to deal with that uh, maybe two studies from now. But here's another famous acrostic that some of you will be aware of and some of you may not. It is the word tulip, T-U-L-I-P. Tulip is the, the flower in Holland. And I thought about maybe later when we finish this series of studies, 
giving just a little history lesson about the canons of Dort and some of those things and about how people used to believe what, what I'm teaching you tonight. That was the truth and the stuff that everybody believes today was branded as heresy. Well, somebody came up with an acrostic and T, T-U-L-I-P, T stands for total depravity. And U stands for unconditional election. Now, justification, listen, hear me now, and I'll, I'll prove this to you later. Justification is conditional upon faith. That's why I started out tonight with John 6, 37. All that the Father gives me should come to me. Him that comes to me, I will in no wise cast out. Justification is conditioned upon faith, but election is unconditional. Somebody said, well, I thought it was the, the, the Lord voted for you, and the devil voted against you, and uh, the deciding vote was yours. Well, here's the problem with that. You were too young to vote when the election occurred. It was before the foundation of the world. So you couldn't vote. There wasn't but one voter, and that was God. T is total depravity. U is unconditional election. L is limited atonement, and some don't like that term, and, and that's okay. Some use the term particular redemption. Some use the term definite atonement. That's okay. But as I pointed out to you last week, the atonement is limited. It's either limited by the will of man or it's limited by the will of God. But it is limited, not in its efficacy, but in its purpose and application. And then the I, T-U-L-I, is invincible grace, or what some would call irresistible grace. And P is perseverance of the saints. So T-U-L-I-P, total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, invincible grace, and perseverance and preservation of the saints. Now, if we state those points theologically, here's what we have. Man is a sinner. That's total depravity. God is the author of the salvation of his people. That's unconditional election. Christ purchased the salvation of his people. That's a limited atonement. The Holy Spirit reveals and applies the purchased salvation to God's people, that's invincible grace, and that those who love God and who are the called are preserved unto a state of glory in heaven, and that is perseverance that depends upon preservation. Now, I want you to turn to Ephesians chapter 1, if you will. In this scheme of salvation, we have consistency. And here's what I mean by consistency. I, I touched on this a little bit last week, but let me touch on it again. Ephesians 1. This scheme of things has consistency. Here is what I mean by that. Suppose we take the position that the Father sent His Son to offer an atonement for all men. 
Okay? So the Father determined that all men had the possibility of being saved. The Son dies for them, and then the Spirit has to wait upon the will of man. He has to wait to see what man is going to do and what man decides to do. There's not any consistency in that. But if the Father elects and the Son dies for those for whom the Father elects, and we looked at John 17, 9 last week where Christ said, I pray for them whom you have given me. I do not pray for the world. And I think Jesus would pray for those who were given to him. And if the whole world was given to him by the Father, and the whole world is not saved, then the Father is going to be disappointed, and the Son shed his blood for a lot of people in vain who will not be saved, and the Spirit can't do anything about it. But if the Father elects and the Son purchases not only their justification, but their sanctification and their glorification as well, and the Spirit calls them and applies everything that Christ has provided to them, then we have a consistent scheme of salvation. In the popular scheme of modern Christendom, the Son dies for all the world, the Father chose all the world, but the work of the Spirit must wait on the dead sinner to grant himself repentance and faith and to hold out to the end. Even though the Father chose all the world and the Son the Son died for all the world, all the world will not be saved. And as I say again, in this scheme of things, nothing is secured. The Father is disappointed. The Son died in vain. And the Spirit is mostly frustrated in his efforts to bring sinners to Christ. But what does the Bible say? What does the Bible say? Many years ago... I taught in a conference. I used to teach in a lot of conferences, and I was in a conference in Pine Bluff, Arkansas. The pastor there was Calvary Baptist Church, was uh, Pastor E.W. Johnson. And I taught on the subject, who is a Christian? And all of the men that were in the congregation were sovereign grace fellows that believed in the sovereign grace of God. And a lot of them proudly said that they were Calvinists. Uh, and so I said, many of you do not know that if John Calvin were in your midst today, he would stone most of you. Because John Calvin believed in infant baptism, and John Calvin believed in a Sabbath day, and if you broke the Sabbath day, John Calvin, we have at least one, one example where they, they executed a man for doing a civil crime on the Sabbath day because they still had the law intact. So I explained to them, I said, I'm not a follower of John Calvin. And I don't follow Jacob Arminius. And I don't follow Sibelius. And I said, salvation is not spelled J-O-H-N-C-A-L-V-I-N. That's John Calvin. That's what that spells. The salvation is spelled J-E-S-U-S-C-H-R-I-S-T, Jesus Christ. This is life eternal, 
that they know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. Jesus Christ is the eternal life of God, which if a man or woman or boy or girl have, they have eternal life. He that hath the Son hath eternal life. He that hath not the Son of God shall not see God and does not have eternal life. So what does the Bible say? Well, in Ephesians chapter 1, Paul writes very clearly, by the will of God, in verse 1, he's writing to the saints, to those who are sanctified. That is, those who are set apart. To be a saint is to be someone who is set apart, called by the gospel in the power of the Spirit, and set apart unto the service, the honor, and the glory of Jesus Christ. You know, in the Old Testament, in the temple, you had holy forks and holy knives and holy garments. But all that meant was those things were set apart to be only used in the service of the Lord. And when you're saved and when I'm saved, we are set apart to serve the Lord Jesus Christ exclusively. And he says, I'm writing to the faithful in Christ Jesus. That's verse 1. Now he says, this is particular language. He says, grace to you. Not grace to the world, grace to you. And peace. Grace always comes before peace. There's never any peace to those who are not partakers of grace. From God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Now watch it. Look at how he describes the people of God. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us. Now I pointed out many times that the word translated blessed or blessed here is the word, the Greek word from which we get our word to eulogize. So when you're at a funeral and you eulogize someone, the, the word eulogy means to say a good word about. So what he says is here in verse 3, let's say a good word about the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has said a good word about us. With all the spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. He says we're we're blessed. Then he says in verse 4, He has chosen us. Do you remember Jesus telling his disciples, You have not chosen me, but I have chosen you? He has chosen us unconditionally before the world. No conditions to be met. Can't, has to be, election has to be unconditional because there were no conditions to be met. It was before the foundation of the world. Again, I say, justification has conditions. Justification is conditioned upon repentance and faith. Then he says in verse 5, he says, He's chosen us in him for the foundation of the world. We should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestinated and adopted us. Verse 5. We are predestinated and we are adopted children of Jesus Christ to himself. And he did all of this according to the good pleasure of his will. People say, why does God, I had a man say one time, why does God, why did he do that? And I said, because he wanted to. That's why he did it. That's why he does anything. Because he wants to. But he wants to do and will do what is right and what is just. 
So he said, prohuizo, predestinated us, comes from a word that means to determine the horizon beforehand. So he says he predestinated us unto adoption. Now adoption is only a New Testament, New Covenant doctrine. There was no adoption in the Old Testament. I've told you before, when I was 11 years old, my parents adopted a two-year-old. And the laws in Georgia say that my dad did not have to give me one dime. He didn't have to leave one dime in his estate or in his last will and testament for me. But he, he was forced by law to leave my adopted brother something. And you, you are adopted unto children of Jesus Christ. You're in the family by the adoptive process. Verse 6 he says, to the praise of the glory of his grace wherein he has made us accepted. So look at all of these words now. We're blessed in verse 3. We're chosen in verse 4. We're holy and without blame in verse 4. We're predestinated and adopted in verse 5. And we are accepted in the beloved, that is, accepted in Christ in verse 6. And then he says in verse 7, we are redeemed. We have redemption comes from a word that means to buy off of the slave market. Redemption was the redeeming of slaves off the slave market. We have redemption through his blood. The price of our redemption was his blood. That's how he purchased us. Acts 20, 28. He had God has redeemed us with his own blood. Acts chapter 20, verse 28. So he says redemption through his blood which gave us the forgiveness of our sins. So we're, we're, we're blessed, we're chosen, we're holy and without blame, we're predestinated, we're adoption, we're accepted, we're redeemed, we're forgiven. And then in verse 8, he says, we're given wisdom and prudence, that is understanding. He has abounded toward us in all wisdom and prudence. Now, what did we read a moment ago in Romans 3? There's none that what? There's none that understands. But he has given us an understanding. That's what it tells us right here. He has abounded toward us in wisdom and prudence. And some of you are going to have a little mark there and it's going to say understanding because that's the word for it. He gives us an understanding. An understanding of his salvation, an understanding of the means of his salvation, understanding of the cause of his salvation, wisdom and prudence, that is understanding. Then he says in verse 9, he has made known unto who? Unto us. Who are the us? Those who believe. Those who have come to Christ. He has made known unto us the mystery of his will. Why did he do that? Because he wanted to, according to his good pleasure, which he has purposed in himself. He says that the mystery here. But he's made it known to us in the sense that he has shown us what salvation is and where it is. Then he says in verse 10, he's given us a great hope that in the dispensation of the fullness of times, he might gather together in one all things in Christ which are in heaven and which in earth even in him. We have a hope that we will be gathered with all the children of God of all the ages. Then in verse 11, he says, We have an inheritance in whom also we have obtained an inheritance. And he says that inheritance was pre 
destinated, predestinated, had to be before the foundation of the world. And it was predestinated according to the purpose of him who works most things after the counsel of his own will, if men will allow him to do so. That's not what the translation says. It says he works all things after the counsel of his own will. Now we saw Sunday how he used Joseph's brothers. He used the Pharaoh's dreams. He used Potiphar's wife. He used all of this stuff to bring to pass his purpose for Joseph and for us. I pointed out to you Sunday that we were included when God said when Joseph said to his brothers that the Lord is behind all of this, that he did it in order to make sure that you had a posterity and to make sure that he kept his promise to Abraham that he would give him a number of children which no man can number. And I pointed out to you that can't be possible unless all of us who are children of Abraham through faith in Christ are included in that number. You can go back and get that, get that message if you want to. So he says, he works all things after the counsel of his own will. And then he says, we are to the praise of his glory, verse 12. We trusted in Christ, which trust was given to us. And you notice here, it uses the word trusted rather than just faith. Faith can be an intellectual thing, but to trust is to lean on for support. And we don't just, uh, you know, we don't just believe in Christ. We believe on him, which means we trust him. In whom you trusted, verse 13, after you heard and believed the gospel. It was God that was behind your hearing the gospel. Many people have not heard the gospel. He was involved in allowing you to hear the gospel and entrusting Christ in whom you trusted after you heard the word of truth, not just preaching, not just somebody raising their voice, not just going through the motions of ceremony and ritual, but you heard the truth. You heard the truth, the gospel, the good news of your salvation in whom after you believed you were sealed. You were sealed. The Holy Spirit is called the earnest the earnest money, the down payment of our full salvation. Verse 14, which is the earnest of our inheritance. You go to buy a car, they say, would you like to put a little down payment down? So you put some money for it. You're going to buy a house, you got to put forth some earnest money. He says the Holy Spirit seals us, and he is the earnest, he is the pledge, he's the down payment, he's the guarantee from God himself, of our inheritance, we can't lose it, until the redemption of the purchased possession unto the praise of his glory. So the Holy Spirit is the earnest or the guarantee of our future full salvation when we shall have been perfected unto the image of Christ. Now, I think I've told you this. In fact, I know I have many times. Verses 1 through 14 is one sentence. What you find in all of those verses, you find semicolons and colons and all that, but it's one sentence. Paul started talking about what we have in Christ, 
and he just talked till he gave out a breath. So the first 14 verses, one sentence. Now, let's turn over. Let's see how far we can get. I think we're out of time, so we probably shouldn't do this. But let's just read this passage because this is where we're going to be next week. God willing, and I live, Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9. We'll take it up here, God willing, next week. I'll say again, this uh, E in grace requires more than one study. I won't have to give you 10 or 15, but I do want to do two or three. In Romans chapter 9, he says that in verse uh, 6, that many of the people thought that the Word of God did not accomplish what it wanted to accomplish, what God wanted His Word to accomplish. And he corrects that, Romans 9 verse 6, not as though the Word of God has taken none effect, for they are not all Israel which are of Israel, neither because are they the seed of Abraham, are they all children, but in Isaac shall thy seed be called. That is, they which are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted for the seed. For this is the word of promise at this time. This is from Genesis 18. At this time I will come and Sarah shall have a son. And not only this, but when Rebekah had conceived, now Rebekah was the wife of Isaac, who was the son of Abraham. When Rebekah had conceived by our father Isaac, before the children were born, before the, either one of them had done any good or evil, and he says God did this purposely, that the purpose of God according to what? According to election might stand, not of works, but of him that calls, it was said to the oldest boy, it was said unto her, the oldest boy is going to serve the youngest boy. I'm going to explain that, God willing, next week. It is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? God forbid. For he said to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion so then it is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. For the scripture said to Pharaoh, even for this same purpose, I raised thee up, that I might show my power in thee, and that my name might be declared throughout all the earth. Therefore hath he mercy on whom he will have mercy, and whom he will he hardens. You will say then unto me, why does he find fault? For who has resisted his will? Our Father, we ask your blessings upon the study this evening. Pray that you'll help us to bow our wills to your word. Pray that you will give us an understanding of what we have considered. And that this understanding might bear fruit in our lives as we seek to be more zealous for thee. For thou art worthy, through Christ Jesus our Lord, we pray for his sake we ask it. Amen. And thank you.